up to the book of Habakkuk. Uh, most of you probably, um, I'm sure, know where this is. It's right between Nahum and Zephaniah, if that helps. Um, the book of Habakkuk, uh, page 785. Go ahead and let's stand together. Um, this is in the crispy part of your Bible, probably. Um, I'll give you a few moments. I was kidding. Uh, most people don't know where this is. So um, if you go to Matthew in the New Testament and head left just a bit, um, or you can go to Psalms, kind of right in the middle, and, and head right. Um, the book of Habakkuk. We're going to read uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. This is one of those moments where all the people on a digital device got there faster than the rest of us. Um, Habakkuk chapter 1. All right. I don't hear any more pages, so I'll read. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked Surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen proudly press on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. That's God's word. You may be seated. So the series that we just completed last week was called Building a Stronger Church. And we talked through it about the idea of growing our faith. And each week was looking at an element of how we grow our faith. And at the beginning of that series, I t we talked about the five ways that our faith grows. The five things that, that are necessary for our faith to grow. And we spent the last series kind of talking about the first three or four of them. And so let me just remind you what these are. The five ways that your faith grows. Uh, number one is practices of seeking God. I don't know someone with a growing faith that doesn't spend time reading the Bible, in prayer, uh, thinking about the Lord, spending time with him. There's personal practices of seeking God. There's also personal risks. Those moments when you step out, those moments when you... Uh, Take a risk, take a challenge. And so one of the challenges that we just did this weekend, we challenged many of you to participate in our 24 hours of prayer, where for 24 hours there were people here praying. And um, I read a quote once by a guy named Jim Cimbala. He said, you can tell how popular a church is by who comes on Sunday, but you can tell how popular Jesus is by who comes to the prayer meetings. And we had over 200 of you come to the prayer meetings over this weekend, which I want to just clap for and thank you. Um, people coming in the middle of the night, people coming early in the morning, people coming right in the heart of the afternoon. And, um, and I think 
almost every person I talked to said, wow, it went fast. Like an hour almost didn't even feel like enough time. And, and so we grow through those personal risks. We also grow through practical teaching. You know, kind of that, I need to know this, help me out, help me understand, make it practical. We grow also through providential relationships, those relationships that God just puts in your life, and you don't always plan it, and you don't know where it came from, but it just happens. You go, man, I'm so thankful for this person. They helped me grow. And, and that's kind of what we talked about, is, is there's things we can do proactively to build our faith. But then there's a fifth thing that grows our faith that we can't really control very much. And how we respond to those moments is critical. So number five is pivotal circumstances. Pivotal circumstances. These are the circumstances when there's crisis. These are the circumstances when there's difficulty. These are the circumstances of transition. Right? When you get married or when you have a baby or when you move somewhere, these are pivotal circumstances. When that diagnosis comes back, cancer, pivotal circumstance. When you go through a major transition in your health or in your life, it's a pivotal circumstance. And, and, and listen, none of us would say, man, the biggest times of spiritual growth were in the moments when I was most at ease and most comfortable. We'd all say it was through the pivotal circumstances. And this book, this book of Habakkuk, presents for us a pivotal circumstance. Habakkuk the prophet finds himself burdened. That's what it says in verse 1. It says the oracle, of the, the, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And that word oracle could just as easily be translated burden. He felt burdened by something. He felt weighed down by something, by what he saw. And, and he needed to wrestle with God about it. In fact, the, na- the name Habakkuk means to embrace with wrestling. And so Habakkuk here is is wrestling with God. He's trying to understand some stuff. There's some things in his life, there's some things in his circumstance that he sees, and he doesn't know how to make sense of it. And he knows, God, I I need to grow through this. You've got to help me understand this. It's a pivotal circumstance. And one of the things I love about this book is we're going to see over these three weeks, we're going to see Habakkuk's faith grow. You're going to see his trust in the Lord grow. Deepen. In fact, the theme verse is really chapter 2, verse 4, that the righteous will live by faith. And you see his faith grow. Now, pivotal circumstances can cut both ways. The Puritans used to say it's the same sun that melts the, eye, the ice that hardens the clay. So you face these moments, and for some people it melts their heart, and it says, oh God, I need you, oh God, would you help me? And for other people it hardens their heart. You know, I, don't, I can't trust you anymore. And fortunately for Habakkuk, it melts his heart. It grows his faith. And here's basically the, 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 the overriding question of this book. Is how is it that God can allow so much wickedness to prevail? How is it that so much evil tends to win? How is it that, that godless... Faithless people seem to prosper, and godly, humble people often don't. Have you ever wrestled with that? Have you ever thought about that? Maybe you've thought about that in your own life, where you're going, I, I, I still don't have a job, and I have worked hard, and, and friends around me are starting to doubt and go, Are you really doing enough? And yes, I'm doing enough, but God, you're just not opening the door. But all these other people just go ahead of me. Or a circumstance in your health 
where you're going, God, why does this happen? If you've ever had those questions, that's what the book of Habakkuk is really about. Now, the book of Habakkuk, let me just give you some background on this that will really set the stage for us studying this book over these three weeks. Um, One thing you need to know is this is in the section of Scripture that we call the Minor Prophets. Uh, The Minor Prophets um, go from, I think, Hosea to Malachi. And they're called Minor Prophets, not because they're less important, uh, just they're smaller on the whole. And so that's why the the Major Prophets are longer books and the Minor Prophets are smaller. Habakkuk is an interesting one. It's a unique book among the prophets because most of the prophet uh, most of the prophets were the prophets talking to people. This is an interesting book. This is a unique book in that what this book records is Habakkuk talking directly to God and then God answering. In fact, the, the outline of this goes Habakkuk complains, God answers. That's what we'll look at today. Then Habakkuk complains again. And God answers again. That's what we'll look at next week. And then Habakkuk basically says, here's what I've learned through this whole process. And so it's interesting because you get to see this dialogue between the prophet and God. This is also an important book because it's quoted four times in the New Testament. Four times of of this little book, New Testament authors quote it. So clearly it's an important book. There are some lessons in here that we need uh, to see. Uh, But finally, if you're going to understand this book, you've got to understand the historical background, the historical setting. And um, I find that, that many Christians just have never really been taught the history of the Old Testament. So you, you like to learn, right? right? Like you hate it when you ask your kids, what did you learn today? And they're like, nothing. Right? And you're like, I know you learned something. Tell me. Right? But it's like, where do you think they got that from? Us. How was church? Fine. What did you learn? I don't know. Right, so, you, so you can't answer that way today. You, you will have learned something at church today. We're going to go through the, the history of the Old Testament. And, and this isn't just to learn it. It's also to help you understand the setting of this book. Okay, So the history of the Old Testament really is this. That God created everything good. He created man in his own image. And it was very, very good, he said. But, but creation was plunged into sin. And became not very good because Adam and Eve exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they decided that they wanted to to be like God. And so they did what they were not supposed to do. And they plunged the world into sin. And since then, God has been working to change that. To redeem a people. And to rescue them from sin. And so you see all sorts of examples of this and different sort of cycles of how this works. You see in the book of Genesis, you see that, that wickedness is pervasive and, and it's everywhere. And so God calls a man named Noah to build an ark. And he preserves a godly line through Noah building that ark. And then you see it, it, later on in Genesis that God calls a man named Abraham who's 99 years old when he finally has the son that's been promised to him. And God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to build people out of your descendants. Well, then he has a number of those descendants. At the end of the book of Genesis, the people are, are stuck in Egypt. Um, and they end up there for 400 years. And you fast forward to the book of Exodus and you see that the people are enslaved. There's in, in slavery there. And so God raises up a, a stuttering murderer named Moses. And he says, I want you to go and deliver my people. And so Charles Heston shows up and he says, let my people go, right? And, and, that's, and that's that deliverance. That's that rescue. And he does it with, with a lamb, a Passover lamb that had to be blameless and spotless, foreshadowing the ultimate lamb that would come in Jesus. 
So he rescues those people, and he begins to build them into a nation. Right? The, the three ingredients of a nation are a people, a land, and a constitution. Right? So they get the people in Egypt, and then they develop this land. When God says, go into this land of Canaan, and they get the constitution with, with the Ten Commandments and the law. And, and God says, be a faithful nation. But they're not. They're not. They constantly fall into idolatry, fall into wickedness, fall into injustice. God provides judges to help remedy the situation. They go, we don't want the judges. We want a king like all the other nations. And so God raises up a king. And he's just like all the other nations. He, they get Saul. And Saul is kind of a man after the world's heart. He's head and shoulders above everybody, but his heart towards God is weak. And he reigns for 40 years, and the country suffers for it. And then God raises up another king who starts out as a, as a pimple-faced shepherd boy who kills a giant named David. And David is a man after God's own heart. And he reigns for 40 years. Well, then he dies, and his son Solomon reigns for 40 years. And Solomon was kind of half-hearted, started off good, trailed off into idolatry with all of his wives, and then, and then uh, came back a little bit at the end. Well, then something important happens. In 931 B.C., Solomon dies. And when Solomon dies, the kingdom of Israel splits. Okay, Ten of, There are 12 tribes. Ten of them go north and become what's known as Israel. And two of them stay in the south and are what's called Judah. So if you've ever read First and Second Kings, you'll notice it talks about this guy was king of Israel, this guy was king of Judah, this guy was king of Israel, this guy was king of Judah. And you're like confused going, isn't it the same thing? No. They had split at that point. Now, all the kings in Israel, in the northern kingdom, were bad. They were wicked. They plunged them into idolatry. And, and then in the south, most of the kings were bad. And they had occasional moments of revival of Hezekiah and Josiah and some other people. But for the most part, they, they, it was wicked. And so at that time is what begins to pro- pop up all over the place are prophets. Prophets. Why would, why would prophets now suddenly have to be on the scene? Because the kings were supposed to be the spiritual leaders. And if the kings were not leading well, then the prophets had a job to do. And so the prophets had basically one message. You know what it was? Repent. Turn around, right? It was a very easy sermon. They would walk up and go, good morning. (laughs) Repent. Let's pray. It was just that every week. I mean, that's what it was. Because they were trying to call people back. Come on. Turn away from your idolatry. Turn back toward God. And they don't, for the most part. Well, then God raises up. Well, let me me say this first. So in 722... About 200 years after this kingdom split, um, the northern kingdom, Israel, is captured and taken into captivity by Assyria, the dominant world power. And it's a warning to Judah to say, hey, guys, listen, if you don't repent, like God's serious. He's going to do something about this. And isn't it wise to learn from other people's mistakes instead of just your own? Well, they don't. But God at one point raises up a king named Josiah. And Josiah is a godly young man. And it, amazingly, he, he's like going through the temple and it's cluttered with all these idols and all this dust and all this stuff. And he finds a copy of the law. He finds a copy of the Bible and he starts to read it. And he's like, wow, 
There's a God, and we need to follow him. Like, we've been screwing up big time. And, and so he leads the country in, into a season of repentance, and they reinstitute the Passover. And, and there's all these reforms under Josiah. Well, Josiah then dies in 609 B.C. And these dates become important, okay? He dies in 609 B.C. And in 605, the Babylonians will capture the nation of Judah. So there's a four-year gap between Josiah's death and Babylon taking over. And, and so that's the window. That's the gap in which Habakkuk writes. Because what happened is after Josiah's death, all the other kings that, that followed him in brief succession were wicked. They, they just took the country right back where it had been before Josiah. And so that's the context that Habakkuk is writing in. Habakkuk is, is writing, and actually what this book reveals, this book predicts that Babylon is going to come in and take over um, in just a few years. God predicts that in this book. So that's the history. That's what's going on. And Habakkuk is there, and he's a prophet, and he loves the Lord, and, and he saw what happened under Josiah, and now he's looking at it going, this place is broken. There's no godly people here. The kings are immoral and unjust. Violence is pervading. God, do something. That's what he says in verses 2 through 4. This is his first complaint. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Those words cry there are different words actually in verse 2. The first one where he says, how long shall I cry for help? Is, it's kind of a basic you know, cry for help. Uh, the, the second one, cry to you violence, is, is a cry of agony. Saying, God, I've cried, I've cried to you for help. And then I cried to you in agony. When are you going to answer? How long? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? God, it, it looks like there's all this injustice. There's all this violence. There's all this destruction in the land. Your people are not being faithful. He says in verse 4, So the law is paralyzed. The Torah. We just had this big reform where everyone discovered your law. It's, it's paralyzed. It's numb. It's useless because the leaders won't follow it. And justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. So strong words, right? Paralyzed, perverted. You know what Habakkuk's question is? It's basically this. God, why are you so indifferent? God, why doesn't it seem like you care? you ever felt that way? Like, God, I'm trying to honor you, I'm trying to love you, I'm trying to do the right thing, and, and I'm still sick. And my daughter is still hurting. I still can't find work. And I look at the decay of our country, and I just think, God, how, how long? You ever felt like that? Maybe if life has just been peachy for you and you've never had an experience like that, at least if you have even the slightest bit of compassion, you could look around to other people and go, God, how long are you going to let that person suffer that way? God, how long? Why do you seem so indifferent? It's a classically human question. 
as we live in this fallen world. And, and I just love, I love here that, that God never rebukes Habakkuk for asking that question. God never says, it's not that bad, get over it. Never says that. Never says, stop asking me those questions. Right? Listen, God's a big boy. He can handle it. I love that, that Habakkuk has this relationship where he can go honestly to the Lord with his complaint. Well, how does God answer? Well, God answers uh, really in sort of two parts. The first part of, God answer, of God's answer is this. God, God's answer is basically, okay, Habakkuk, first of all, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. God, why are you so indifferent? First of all, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. That's what he says in verse 5. He says, look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. Right? That's four different ways of saying, Habakkuk, pay attention. Hey, look up here. Habakkuk, pay attention. And then here's what he says. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. This is why we've called this message God's unbelievable plan. We use the term unbelievable a lot. Like, that meal was unbelievable. No, there was a lot of butter, and it was fried. Like, I totally believe it. Like, like if you eat a vegetarian meal like, that's really good, that's unbelievable, okay? But we just throw unbelievable around. Did you see this? Unbelievable, unbelievable. Listen, God is saying, listen, this is unbelievable. God, why are you so indifferent? And, and, and what he's going to say is, listen, Habakkuk, I'm not indifferent. But, but the way that I'm going to solve the problem that you're crying out to me about, the way I'm going to do it is unbelievable. You are not going to believe it if I tell you. And in fact, that is what happens in the rest of the book. What is he going to do? He says, verse 6, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That's another word for the Babylonians, right? So, so we know that in just a few years, Babylon is going to come. They're going to take this over. And God is predicting that to Habakkuk here. He's saying, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Now listen, the Babylonians are terrible people. The Babylonians were this strong, vicious army. They had overcome Assyria. They had overcome Egypt. They, they had conquered in incredible ways. And the rest of this passage is God describing how vicious and terrible they are. Right? Look, look what he says. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. He talks in verse 8 about their, their, their weapons, their horses and, and their horsemen. Verse 9, they all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. They have no problem taking you captive. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. You got a fortress? Ha <laughs> ha, we're going to take that down. I mean, these are tough dudes. Verse 11, then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. God, why are you so indifferent? God's answer. First of all, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. Second of all, I'm going to use a more evil nation to punish a less evil one. And what we're going to see next week is, is what Habakkuk tries to make sense of that. Right? Okay, God, we're, we're bad, but you're going to use someone worse than us to punish us? 
That doesn't feel right. But that's God's answer. Now, we're, we're going to teach it in chunks, so I, I can't get into how God eventually makes sense of this, so you'll have to come back next week for that. But this is how God responds. He says, listen, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And here's what I'm going to do. Babylon, that evil, terrible, destructive, violent nation, is going to pour out my justice on Israel, on Judah, on my people. My covenant people are going to be punished by pagans. Whoa. So we'll leave it there and let Habakkuk resume the discussion next week. But before we do, I want to pull out just what do we learn from this? What does this mean to us? I mean, this is, you know, we're now reading this 2,600 years later and totally different setting. And what in the world does this have to do with us? What do we learn from this book? Well, well, first of all, we've got to acknowledge we're often in the same boat as Habakkuk. God, how can you let all this injustice happen? You look at the decay of our society, the decay of our world, and, 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 and people see it as a huge decay, and I think it is a decay, but I also think it was never that good. It's just now you get to see it for what it really is. But you look at that and you go, God, why are you so indifferent? So we can relate to this same problem. What can we learn from this book? Four things from this particular section. Number one is move toward God with honesty. Move toward God with honesty. God has his big boy pants on. He can take it. When you're hurting, when you're frustrated, when you're thinking thoughts of, God, where are you? Move near him with honesty. What we tend to do is we tend to draw away. We tend to pull back. No, move in. Now listen, he does it with an attitude of respect and an attitude of God. You're God and this doesn't make sense and I don't understand, right? It's not saying, God, I'm, I'm better than you. I want to boss you around. He's just going, God, help me understand this. So move toward God with honesty. The closer a relationship is, the more honest you're able to be without it destroying the relationship. So move toward God with honesty. Here's the second thing we learn is that God gives revelation, not explanation, because what we often need is a new view of God. So listen, God does not give explanation. He doesn't say, well, Habakkuk, here's exactly what I'm thinking. He doesn't give explanation. He gives, he gives revelation. Here's who I am. Here's what's going to happen. Right, verse 5. I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I am raising up the Chaldeans. I am doing this. Here's who I am. I have the power to move the most powerful people on earth like they're on my leash. That's what God is saying. He, listen, he doesn't give explanation. He gives revelation. This reminds me of what happens in the book of Job book of Job. Job is this blameless man who loves the Lord, and Satan comes to, to God and says, you know, God, the only reason that Job loves you is because you've given him all this stuff. You know, he just likes you for your money. What if you take all that away? Take away his health. Take away his family. And God says, okay, do it. Do it. Don't kill him. So Job has all of his family die, except for his wife, who he kind of wishes was dead. She's sort of a pain in his side at that point. And then his 
body is covered in sores. And, and the rest of that book is, is people debating, what, what happened here? Why did God allow this to happen? And, and Job's friends come along and they say, well, well, listen, bad things don't happen to good people. So clearly you must be a bad person. God's trying to clean up your act because you're a bad guy. And, uh, and they, that's their simplistic, overly simplistic explanation for this. They don't know all that happened behind the scenes with God and with Satan. And, and, and you can imagine the pain Job is feeling. And Job questions God and has similar kinds of things of, How long, O oh Lord? What are you doing here, God? And when God finally answers at the end of the book, he doesn't even really give an answer. Why is this happening? God doesn't give explanation. But what God does do is give revelation. Job chapter 38. Don't need to turn there. I'll just read some of this. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. God, hey Job, I got some questions for you now. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I figured out where the edge of the sea was going to be? Hey, Job, where do we keep the snow again? And it's just chapter after chapter after chapter of God saying, I'm God. I'm in charge. I'm in control. I can be trusted. I'm sovereign. He never explains it. But you know what Job needed? He didn't need an explanation. Because if he got the explanation, he probably wouldn't believe it. What he needed was revelation. Which is why at the end of the book, Job says, before I had heard of you, but now I've seen you. And when you're going through pain, when you're going through difficulty, as much as you would love an explanation, as much as you would love for God to explain it all to you, what you need is a view of God. And his majesty. You need a view of his sovereignty, of his control. So the third lesson we see here is that God often uses the least likely way in order to show that he's in control. Right? What would be the least likely way that God is going to judge the immoral people in Judah? With Babylon. Right? They would have never thought of that. That's why God says this is unbelievable. But, but why does God do that? Why does God often do the most likely, most unlikely way? Right? I mean, think about it. God, God decides to use a guy building a boat when there's never been a flood. And people are like, dude, Noah, you're crazy. Why? But that's God's MO. That's what God does. He uses the least likely thing. He decides to build a nation off of a man who in his own words is as good as dead. I'm old. I can't have another kid. He uses a, a little kid to kill a giant who would become king. He uses a carpenter from Nazareth. Remember what they said about Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And that carpenter, that Galilean peasant, saves the world. And then he uses fishermen. Fishermen who talk too much. He turns the world upside down with them. And then he uses a Pharisee who murders Christians to spread his church around the world. Why does God do that? To show you that he's in charge. 
Because when you see that God's in charge, you see that he's got it, you don't need to worry. God's got this. I can trust him. What we need is revelation. We need to see God's control. And God will often do things in the least likely way. Just to show you, hey, I got this. There's one more thing that we learn. See, if you want to If you need need revelation, if you want to see God, which is what you need, then you need to see number four, that Jesus, God himself, was overcome by evil so that evil will not ultimately overcome. See, this book just points ahead to Jesus. That's what all of this points to. That's why it's quoted four times in the New Testament. And if you go, God, how is it that you can let good people suffer at the hands of wicked people. God, do you hear me? Listen, listen. God himself knows what that's like because Jesus himself, the only truly good and righteous person, was overcome by evil so that eventually evil would be overcome. Which means When you look to the God who's in control, he's not distant. He's not just powerful. He's sympathetic. He understands he's been there. And whatever reasons he has must be good if he's he's been through it and he's going to allow you to go through it too. And in the end, what it does is it makes us where we are hopeful that eventually the evil will be overcome. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, your word. Thank you for Habakkuk. Thank you for the, the foreshadowing of Jesus. God, thank you that Jesus eventually was overcome by evil so that you would conquer evil in the end. And God, we so long for that day. God, I pray for those today who um, this question of, God, where are you? Why are you so indifferent? Is not a hypothetical one or a theoretical one, but it's exactly how they feel right now. And God, I pray for them. I pray that even this message would give them a a bigger view of who you are. And God, a, a peace to know that even if they may never get an explanation, that if they see you as you are, it's enough. God, help them to cling to you. Help them to trust you. God, deepen our faith in these pivotal circumstances when when things are not going the way we would expect. God, thank you for using the least likely way to demonstrate your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.